0: Father we come before you today we thank you for the blessings first and foremost and we we're so thankful to be here on your Shavuot your day of Pentecost the feast of weeks we pray that what we do during this day would be honoring to you we thank you for the blessings for the word that you've given us we thank you also for your Ruach Kodesh your Holy Spirit we pray that your blessings would be here always, and that you would bless your people no matter where they're at. And we give you all praise and honor in Yahshua's beloved name, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. Normally, Alan doesn't pass me notes, but he's passing me notes today. And um, so the six-day war evidently started on June 5th and lasted only six days. So thank you for passing me notes very important day, really, in Israel's history, and it's amazing how they won and so much against them, and yet Yahweh, I believe, supernaturally defended Israel and, and uh, allowed them to retain that nation. I want to begin today by asking why this feast is so important, why the Feast of Weeks, by the way, also known as Shaviot, meaning weeks. Or the Feast of Weeks, as we see in Scripture. Why is it so important? Or two of the greatest events in the history of mankind, really, occurred during this time. As we'll see in this message, this was the giving of the law to Moses, the Torah, and the outpouring of Yahweh's Holy Spirit, His Ruach Kodesh. Think about the impact if Yahweh's law or if the Holy Spirit was never given, if it was never poured out. These events changed the course of mankind, especially those who follow Yahweh. Through Yahweh's law, we were given the knowledge of right and wrong, of morality, and blessings for those who follow that. And of course, we know that through the Spirit, we were given the wisdom, the wisdom, the insight, strength, In Yahweh. We go to the Holy Spirit and ask, Yahweh's Spirit, to ask for his blessings so this day is an incredibly important day for Yahweh's people. It's one day, the other big feast days, or seven days, this is one day. But nonetheless, it's still important. I want to begin today with Leviticus 23, verse 15. It's always good to go back to the beginning here and understand the command. It says here, 15 and 16, says, You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf, or the wave sheaf, Seven Sabbaths shall be complete, which was yesterday, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, which is today, shall be 50 days. And you shall offer new meat offering or grain offering. We know meat offering is grain offering to uh, Yahweh, it says. So we see something very unique to begin with. Normally, for the feast days, Yahweh gives us a month and a day. We see this during Unleavened Bread. It says a word to observe, the Unleavened Bread, to begin that on when? Abib 15. So it gives a specific month and a specific day, not here. Here we see something very different. And by the way, all the other feast days besides this one follows that same pattern. Instead of providing a day and a month specifically, he commands that we count seven complete Sabbaths or weeks, and then we add a 50th day, and that 50th day then would be Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks of Shavuot. And we know when we were to begin the count. We're to begin the count on the morrow, it says, after the, or when the wave sheaf was offered on the morrow after the Sabbath, or when the wave sheaf was offered. What is a wave sheaf? Well, the wave sheaf was the first fruits of the barley harvest. It was offered on the morrow again the morrow after the Sabbath, or a Sunday during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's when these seven weeks began. The only exception I know of is with the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And uh, no other feast is called a Shabbat but, but the Sabbath within Unleavened Bread. But Yom Kippur is different. Yom Kippur is also called a Shabbat. But no other feast or another Sabbath connected to a feast is called a Shabbat, a Shabbaton. Now, the other thing that is often confusing for people is this phrase, morrow after the Sabbath. I want to spend just a few moments talking about this time. What does this mean, morrow after the Sabbath? It's very simple. The morrow after the Sabbath, this is simply saying the day after Saturday. I know we don't like to use Saturday, but Saturday, Sabbath is just a better word. But it's no different from saying the day after Saturday. So what day is after Saturday? That would be Sunday. Well, that's what scripture means when it says morrow after the Sabbath. It's saying the morrow or the day after the weekly Sabbath. That's why we, again, start the count on the Sunday during 11th and bread, because you start the count on the morrow after the Sabbath. Some people get confused, and they see the word Sabbath, and they believe that we're to begin the count there. But it says morrow after the Sabbath, again, same as saying the day after Saturday, the day after Sunday, whatever it is, it's the day after the weekly sabbath and again the word is shabbat so it refers to the weekly sabbath again the only exception to that that i know of is yom kippur so why must must this occur during unleavened bread some people believe that we should be keeping it outside of the feast as some are doing this year so why is it important that we keep this the wave sheaf which again begins the count during the feast of unleavened bread whereas we know unleavened bread commemorates the wheat harvest everything about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about agriculture, and specifically it is about the weed harvest, so why would you commemorate the very thing that commemorates the first fruits of the barley harvest, or the, I'm sorry, the the, the barley harvest would be the uh, unleavened bread, why would you commemorate the uh, barley outside of the feast, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you would observe it and during the feast, it makes no sense at all to observe the wave sheaf, again, the first fruits of the barley harvest, outside of unleavened bread. And that's why we, again, we count it within the feast. So from the day of the wave sheaf, Yahweh again commands that we count seven complete sabbaths. So seven times seven is 49 days. And then he says that we to add a 50th day, and that 50th day then would mark Pentecost. In fact, the word Pentecost in the Greek means 50th. That's why, and where we derive the name Pentecost. Again, weeks, though, or the feast of weeks refers to the weeks that are counted. And a shaviot literally means weeks in Hebrew, and it refers again to the weeks that are counted. Now, as we see in verse 16, on this day Israel was commanded to offer a grain offering, or it says meat offering. It's awfully confusing sometimes, meat offering. It's the only term that is very difficult or deceptive in some ways, but it's Old English for grain, grain offering. As we know, this refers to the wheat harvest, and this would be, again, during Pentecost. We know the barley harvest occurred during unleavened bread, and the wheat harvest occurred 50 days later. Now, in verse 17, we find where Yahweh commanded that we're to make two, or Israel was to make two-wave loaves. So I'm going to read that. It says there in 23 of 17, it says, You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two deals. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be bacon with eleven. They are the first person to Yahweh. Now, before I go forward and move forward here, I'm going to ask Wilson and Chris. Normally, we've never done this, and this is kind of just spur of the moment. Don't mind getting off my notes some. And uh, Chris. He's quite the baker, by the way, for those who don't know, and he surprised me this morning with these gigantic loaves of bread. Now, we don't really wave them as Israel did. Joshua, as we'll talk about, is our wave sheaf. But nonetheless, I kind of wanted to show everybody what wave loaves would look like. Now, I, I'm told they're not exactly what we find here in Scripture, but they're, they have to be pretty close. So uh, if I can get the camera person downstairs to refocus the camera here and just kind of uh, lift those up if you would and let the congregation and just keep them up long enough so the folks at home can see it. Chris was a little bit concerned he's going to be uh, enjoyed as part of the fellowship meal but um, yeah quite uh, it's a phenomenal job there Chris he's quite the baker again but this is something they would would have they they were big loaves big loaves it's not something going by you to the grocery store. These were big lips. Thank you. You can probably put those down. <laughs> I was thinking about asking them to wave them, by the way, but I, I uh, decided. By the way, I, I've explained this in the past, and I believe I'm right with this. I've, it's hard to find references on this, but best I can ascertain, there, the Bible speaks about wave offering and a heave offering. So what do you suppose the difference? Or, From what I understand, the heave offering was up and down. And the wave offering was side to side. So they were to wave these loaves, and again, I was tempted, but I refrained from asking Chris. So what are, what's unique? Now, you look at those loaves down there, and you, you remember back to unleavened bread, what was the difference between these loaves and unleavened bread? Unleavened. They're leavened. Yeah, that's right. They're leavened. they're leavened. So that's the difference between unleavened bread and a Pentecost. During unleavened bread, it was all about no yeast. Where evidently, it's all about yeast during this feast, from the looks of those loaves. (laughs) Besides for the peace offering or fellowship offering, same thing. The only other offering that had yeast was these loaves. No other offering that Yahweh required had yeast. What do you suppose Yahweh commanded, why he commanded that leavening be used I found this, I thought it was a good explanation. This is from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commenters. It says, the loaves used at the Passover were unleavened. Those presented at Pentecost were leavened. The difference which is thus accounted for, that the one has a memorial of bread hastily prepared for their departure, and that's why they were not leavened, while the other was a tribute of gratitude to Yahweh for their daily food, which was leavened. So based on this, the main reason for leavening during this feast was a show of gratitude or appreciation for our daily provision. Most of the time, the Israelites were eating leavened bread. They were not eating unleavened bread, but leavened bread. And So this is a bread of the common man, and something that, again, showed Yahweh our gratitude. What was the symbolism of the two loaves? Lots of different ideas on to what the two loaves might have represented i'll share a few with you some believe that they represented the those in the old testament and those in the messiah or those in the old and those in the new others believe that they represent the old testament torah the law and also then the outpouring of the holy spirit others yet believe that they represent the two witnesses and there's other beliefs out there what these two loaves represent it's not a salvational issue by the way if you may be, have a different idea, I kind of lean toward the first. They represent the Israel, Israelites of old and those of Messiah, But again, it doesn't explain it. But those are some ideas as to what they, these loaves represent. I do believe that they probably represent something special, something unique. There's some meaning here behind these loaves. We also see something else significant within this passage. Very important that we recognize this. We're going to spend a few moments talking about this. We find here this concept of a first fruits. So these wave loaves was the first fruits, as first fruits, just as the Omer offering and the during unleavened bread was the first fruits. This here is the first fruits of of the uh, of this uh, grain offering. Now we uh, find this word in reference to Yahshua the Messiah. Let's see here. Okay, there it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 23. It says, But now is Messiah risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that have slept by every man is in his own order. Messiah the first fruits, afterward they that are Messiah's at his coming. So, this again, this would be the first fruits in this case during, during unleavened bread. that was the first fruits of the, because that's when Yahshua died. And that's when Yahshua was resurrected, I should say. He was resurrected during this time, during and bread, and he fulfilled, I believe, the first fruits offering. So, this says here that Yahshua has become the first fruits of those who slept. Or this is just another way of saying those who, who died. Now, of course, we know that Yahshua was raised from the dead. We know that Yahshua was the first one to rise from the dead to eternal life. Now, he was not the first one to rise from the dead. We know that. There were others who rose from the dead first. But Yahshua was the first and so far only, person to ever rise from the dead to eternal life. Now, when he did this, he became the first fruits of those who would die and rise from the grave to eternal life. So, Yash was the first fruits. He fulfilled the wave sheep that was offered during when? During unleavened bread. Between what would have been the barley harvest, because, again, that's when we begin the count to Pentecost. We begin to count with the wave sheaf, and then we count 50 days from from unleavened bread to Pentecost and Yahshua's resurrection, so a, a, a connection between the wave sheaf, the first fruits, and Yahshua's resurrection. And, you know, as a side note, this is one reason, another proof in my mind, why the wave sheaf had to be observed during unleavened bread. Now, follow me for just a moment. Again, when was Yahshua resurrected? He was resurrected during the feast, right, of unleavened bread. Through his resurrection, he fulfilled what? He fulfilled the first fruits of the wave sheaf. So, observing the wave sheaf outside of unleavened bread to begin to count to Pentecost would it be like observing Yahshua's death outside of the Passover. It doesn't make sense. Yahshua's resurrection tells us when we should be observing the wave sheaf during unleavened bread that we should be observing the wave sheaf during Unleavened Bread, during Unleavened Bread not, not afterwards, as some do. I uh, thought about that this year, and it makes a lot of sense to me. It's all tied to Yahshua, just as he Passover over again, is tied to his death, Unleavened Bread is tied to his resurrection. So we need to simply ask if the wave sheaf or the Omer offering represents his resurrection from the dead, or we just need to ask, when was he resurrected? And the answer, as we all know, is during the feast. I want to continue on with verse 21. 23, 21 says, You shall proclaim that on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. You shall do no, no servile work, it says therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generation. So it begins here by saying that this time that we are in is called a holy convocation, a holy convocation. This phrase is important. It comes from the Hebrew Kodesh mikrah. And Kodesh mikrah simply means a holy or sacred meeting. So Yahweh commands us to come together, Kodesh mikrah, to come together to worship him, to fellowship with others of like faith. So this is a day, this is a time, this is a feast that we're commanded to come together to worship him. Now, we also see here that on this day, we're to abstain from work, specifically says servile work. Now, the word servile is from the Hebrew abodah. Strongs defines abodah's work of any kind. Jusinus says that it means labor or work. A lot of translations will render this regular work, ordinary work. This is not a day for mundane work. But again, for fellowship, for worship, for focusing on Yahweh and his truth and his word and his promises and what this time represents and symbolizes because it is so important. Well, let's move on now and talk about what this time represents both historically and prophetically. Historically and prophetically. Now, I've already mentioned what they represent. It's believed by many, including the Jews, that this day in the Old Testament represented the giving of the law, giving of the Torah. Now, we don't really exactly see evidence for this, but we certainly see indication indication in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 1, it says, In the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, that same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. When did we see the third month here? It was real recently, just a few days ago. Mathematically, mathematically, we know that Pentecost, or Shavuot, occurs in the third month. We know that. So we know that Israel was in Sinai in the third month, in the month of Pentecost. So even though Yahweh doesn't provide a specific day for Pentecost, it doesn't provide a specific day here, we know that both Pentecost and where we're in now, is the third month. Now, we also know chronologically, right before this, or after this passage, right after this, that Moses would go and receive the law from Yahweh at Mount Sinai. So we see Israel in the third month. We know that this was the month of Pentecost, the month of the Feast of Weeks, Shaviot. We know historically that it was during this same time when Israel was in there is when Moses would go up to receive the Torah from Yahweh. Now, again, I realize it doesn't say Moses was on Mount Sinai on the day of Pentecost. But I believe that this was likely the case. And here's a few things to consider. Number one, again, as we see here, Israel was in Sinai during the third month of the month of Pentecost. Number two, almost every major biblical event occurred on a feast day it's hard to find a major biblical event and it not being tied to a feast day, either old or new. Whether that be Yahshua's death, whether that be his resurrection, whether that be whatever it is, that every major, most every major event occurred on a feast day. And also it's worthy to note here According to a Jewish tradition, Moses received the commandments on the Shavuot, so the Jews believe this as well. I want to move on now and talk about the prophetic meaning of this feast. So we we know the prophetic meaning. There's no questions. We see this in Acts 2, beginning there in Acts 2, verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and in other words, it had arrived, just as we're here today. It says they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it, was, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each one of them as they were all filled with the Holy Spirit or the Ruach Kodesh, And began to speak with other tongues as, as the Spirit gave them utterance. In this passage we find that the disciples were gathered. They were gathered on Pentecost, on Shavuot. So we see the believers were still observing these times, even after Yahshua's resurrection. You know, contrary to popular belief, the feast days were still being observed long after, decades, decades after Yahshua's death and resurrection. We also know prophetically, and you know, I wish more people read their Bible and understood these things. We know prophetically that the Sabbath and feast days will be observed in the coming kingdom. See evidence if you want to jot this down. Isaiah 66, 23 is one. Ezekiel 45 through 46 is another. And the last one here, which is a really great passage, is Zechariah 14, 16 through 19. There we find that all nations will come up from year to year to worship Yahweh of hosts during the Feast of Tabernacles. And for those who refuse to go up, they're going to receive the plague of no rain. So not only will all nations, it says including the family of Egypt, that they too will come up to worship Yahweh during that time. Now in this day, we find that two things happened. Two events happened. Number one, Yahweh poured out his spirit, his ruach, which is Hebrew, pneuma, which is Greek, same thing, meaning spirit, on those gathered. Number two, through Yahweh's spirit, the people Spoke, it says, in tongues. They spoke in tongues. I want to focus first on the outpouring of Yahweh's Holy Spirit. This was, again, the prophetic fulfillment for this day. So when we ask, what is the New Testament of prophetic fulfillment for the day of Pentecost or Shavuot, it would be the outpouring of Yahweh's Ruach of his Holy Spirit. So how does this tie into a fulfillment of the giving of the Torah. What similarities do we find? Well, I believe that these are connected. So many people today, they see an absolute disconnection between a disjointedness between the law and the spirit, sort of like they see with long grace. But if you think about it, through Yahweh's law, through his Torah, we receive the knowledge of his word, what is moral and what is not how to please him through the Spirit, then we receive the ability to rightly apply that word. You see, they complement one another. They complement one another. And that's just additional proof for me that the law was given in the Old Testament on this day. And as then to follow through with that, the Ruach was also given on this day in the New Testament. They complement one another. Where Yahweh began in the Old, he finished in the New through the outpouring, again, of his Holy Spirit. It's an amazing parallel when you think about it. Now, we also see a very special gift. A very special gift was poured out on this day. Again, it was a gift of tongues. I want to talk about the gift of tongues, what what it is, what it isn't, mostly what it is. Now, what is this gift? Or this gift, essentially, is being able to supernaturally communicate or speak in a language other than your own. That's what we see here. Perhaps maybe even hearing. That might even be a better scenario as we see here. So the word tongue comes with the Greek word glossa. Glossa. And glossa, according to Strong's, means a language. Specifically, one, or specialist says, one naturally unacquired. Thayer's... Says this, says the language or dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of other nations. So there's a slight difference between Strong's and Thayer's, but they both agree that number one, this refers to a known language or dialect. It's not the gibberish that we see sometimes. It's a known language, it's a known dialect. And two, in some cases, as we see here, is something that we supernaturally acquire. These people could not understand the languages of the others who were gathered that were not of their nation until now. Until Yahweh poured out his rock upon them, and Yahweh poured out this gift upon them, and they heard heard one another speak in their own language. Now, starting in verse 5, we see this gift in action verse 5 through 13 it says and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men so we see some people think they were just Gentiles of course others say that they were just Jews no they were both we see Jews devout men of every nation under heaven now when this was noised abroad the multitude came together and were confounded they were amazed and perplexed because that every man heard them speaking in his own language so they heard heard one another speak in their own native glossa, their own native language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own language? Wherein we were born Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt, and the parts of Libya, the Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, converts. We hear them all, Greeks and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues or our glossa, our languages, the wonderful works of Elohim. You see, they were communicating the wonderful works of Yahweh, and they could all hear one another as if they were all speaking the same language. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one to another, what means this? Others mocking said, you always have those. You always have one in the crowd, somebody mocking. Others mocking these said, these men are full of new wine. It's important to notice here that there were both, number one, Jews and proselytes. They were converts. They're non-Jewish converts. But they were gathered all throughout the Middle East to observe, again, Yahweh's feast day. And something awesome happened, miraculous happened. In fact, just to show you, here's a map of where these folks would, where where they came from. They came from afar. You know, some people say, just one day I can't be there for Pentecost. And yet, I mean, look at the example we find here, 1,500 miles away From Jerusalem. Think about that. There was no highways. There was no planes. 1,500 miles some came from Rome to be there. As we know from Scripture, Pentecost is one of the three pilgrimage feasts. It's time that we are to gather if we possibly can. So from this example, we find number one, that the feast days are not only for Jews, because it can proselytes for their, converts for there. Number two, people traveled from afar, as far away as Rome. We also see here that through the outpouring of the Ruach Kudesh, those gathered could hear, could hear one another in their own language. And that's why I believe the gift of tongues is not only speaking verbally, but also being able to hear and listen and perceive and understand somebody in a different language. That's what we see here in this example. They, they heard the people around them as if they were speaking their own language. It's not always speaking as hearing it's being able to interpret and understand Now, in verse 11 through 13, we find that the people there were confused. They were confused. They were perplexed. They were uncertain. They really did not know or understand what was happening, the meaning or purpose of this gift. Some believed, I believe most probably, believed that it was evidence of Yahweh's power working. And yet, you always had your mockers again. They were there setting, pointing fingers, I'm sure, saying these people, they've had too much wine It was early in the morning, by the way. Now, obviously, we know that this was the power of Almighty Yahweh. This was Yahweh's Spirit poured out. And I believe, in part, this is why he used the gift of tongues, because it showed Yahweh's Spirit being poured out in this example. You have all these nations there. All these people represented all these different dialects. And yet, when they started speaking and when they were filled with the Spirit... They all heard one another, and it validated, it validated, it confirmed, it verified that this was of Yahweh, this was of his truth. Now, starting in verse 14, we find Peter's Pentecost message, which he explains there the purpose of what we find Acts 2, 14 through 21, it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, wasn't just Peter, though; they were all there, but Peter was the vocal one there, says, Lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It was early. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of Yahweh comes and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved so this was Peter's message Peter explains here that the manifestation of this gift the gift of tongues the gift of glossa, the gift of being able to speak and hear in another dialect was not the result of wine but it was the result of Yahweh's power through his Holy Spirit. goes on to, quote, Joel's prophecy talks about how Yahweh would pour out his spirit upon both men and women and how they would prophesy, how they would see visions, how they would dream dreams in these latter days. Referring to the prophet Joel, Peter said that all these things would occur through Yahweh's spirit and would come to pass in the last days. I believe that the last days began on the day of Pentecost two thousand years ago, and I believe that we are still in the last days, as it is today. Remember that a thousand years is like a day to our Father in heaven. Thousand years—it's been two days. Last days. Peter verifies that these are the last days, or we're still in the last days. As we get closer to his return, I believe that many of these signs we find will come to pass with the recent explosion of sin and immorality, including the growth of homosexuality and transgenderism and whatever else may be included with the LBGTQABCXYZ community. I believe we might be seeing the beginning of birth pains. We are seeing an explosion of immorality, of indecency, of sin, of wickedness, as we have never seen before. People are acting like they're animals literally today. People are confused as to whether they're male or female, or maybe they're both, I don't know. They have no clue. We have lost all sense of reality in this day and age. And I can tell you why, it's because of sin, it's because of depravity. We have forsaken Yahweh, and Yahweh says when we forsake him, that I'm going to give you up to a reprobate mind, and that is precisely what we see today. People today have a reprobate mind. They are unable. They are not even aware of the depravity that they preach because they are so wicked, and I believe that we are close one of the most important lessons we find here is in verse twenty-one. Peter, again quoting Joel, says that those who call on Yahweh's name will be saved. You know the Bible has a lot to say about the name of our Father in heaven. For example, one of my favorites is Isaiah fifty-two six. It says there that His people will know His name. Or how can we say that His name is not important if He says, "My people will know My name"? And yet people say it doesn't matter. We also note Revelation fourteen one that those who are sealed right before Yahweh pours out his plagues, that they are sealed with Yahweh's name. And again, it doesn't matter. As believers, Yahweh's name is not something we can ignore. And I don't believe any of us, we do that here. If you're listening and you're new, I would encourage you to consider that. Yahweh's name is not something we can ignore. Now in verse 29... Peter changes his focus to the resurrection of Yahshua. says there, 29 through 33, says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried in his sepulchres with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that Elohim had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Messiah to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Messiah, that His soul or person was not left in the grave, neither His flesh to see corruption. This Yahshua hath Yahweh raised up. Real quick, I'm just going to stop there for just a moment. If Yahweh and Yahshua are the same being, how can you raise yourself? How can you resurrect yourself? Well, obviously, we can't resurrect ourselves. That makes no sense at all. And here we find that Yahshua was raised from Yahweh. It says, Whereof we are, we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of Elohim exalted, and having received the Father, listen, the promise, the promise, what promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit. So Yahshua received, he was resurrected, he received the promise. And it says that he received the promise of the Holy Spirit. He hath shed forth this, he has. Given this to us, which you now see and hear. In this passage, we find several important truths. To begin with, we see that David was a prophet. How many knew David was a prophet? David prophesied. David prophesied here in Psalms and quoted here by Peter of Yahshua's resurrection, of his death and resurrection. He prophesied that Yahshua's body would not see corruption in the grave. Again, referring to his resurrection. I want to focus for just a moment on verse 33. We see here that when Yahshua was resurrected, that he received a gift. It says that. It says here that when he was resurrected, he received a gift. What gift did he receive? It says here that he received a gift to impart upon those who would follow him. This gift was the Holy Spirit. This gift was the Holy Spirit. Remember... What Yahshua said about the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Yahshua said before the Comforter, the Holy Spirit could come, what had to happen? Yashua had to leave. You see, Yahshua understood this. He understood that the Holy Spirit could not come until he left. And he understood that this departure was not just a departure, it was his death and resurrection. And when that occurred, he was given a gift, it says. And that gift was the Holy Spirit, which we now Partake of in these days, and as we find here. Beginning in verse 36, we find the culmination of these events. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that Elohim hath made the same Yahshua whom you have impelled. So, you know, these folks, they were responsible for the death of our Savior, both Master and the Messiah. Now, when they heard, This they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were distraught. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yahshua Messiah, for the remission of sins that ye receive. It says the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Yahshua received this gift when he himself was resurrected. And now it's being imparted upon those who are immersed into Yahshua's name says, for the promise is unto you and your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as Yahweh Elohim shall call. And with many other words, did he testify and exhort. I wonder what else he said, by the way. Never really thought about that until now. Somebody, sometimes I have thoughts when I'm up here even. How, what else did he say? I wonder. I wonder what else he said, what else he shared. Many words, whatever they were, saying, save yourselves from this toward generation then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day they, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. It's a lot of souls. After all the signs and wonders, and after Peter's dynamic message, we find here that those gathered were pricked in their hearts. They realized for the first time the atrocity they committed. Atrocity, not being too strong of a word. They realized that they had put to death the son of Yahweh, and they were distraught. First time realizing this horrible mistake, and they go to Peter, and they said, What what can we do? What can we do? What can we do to make this right? How can we remedy this problem? How How can we make amends for the awful thing that we've done? So what was Peter's response? So Peter told them to repent, Repent, and as we know, repentance is not just a verbal confession. Repentance is acknowledging our sins and turning a 360 from those sins, living differently. He says, repent and be baptized to be immersed into Yahshua's name. And then we see that those who would seek this, but also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we see? What was the result of all this? We see here that about 3,000 people were immersed into Joshua's name. Can you imagine on one day? I've had a few opportunities over the years. I had one year where I think we had two lines during Tabernacles. I think it was 30 or 40 people. It was quite as blue, you know, blew my mind. I had to see all those people being immersed. It was awesome. Great. That's nothing. 3,000 people here. That was quite a feat. Years ago, I remember Mike Bannock, Brother Mike, speaking about this, and, you know, he's an engineer, most of us, we all know that here. He thinks like an engineer, and he said he was pondering whether that was possible or not. I guess mathematically he worked it out. I guess it is possible to be able to immerse that number of people within one day, but I'm sure it was a long day. But it was a great day. Think about how great that would be. I mean, you would have been exhausted. I'm just horribly tired after 3,000 people. But I'm sure they were just on cloud nine uh, going through and, and seeing all those people commit their lives to Yahweh. It M- must have been just amazing, really. I believe Yahweh used this day as a flame that would ignite the growth of the assembly. And that's what it did. It ignited the growth of the assembly the day of Pentecost. It was that, that point that pushed the assembly forward. Now, John 14, I want to go back and kind of share with you what Yahshua said about the Spirit. This was prior to Acts 2. But nonetheless, I want to go back and just read a little bit about what Yahshua says there. So, in John 14, 15 through 17, and also 26 there, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. That he... So, so Yahshua would pray that Yahweh would, again, give this gift... That he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. But the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you. We find that Yahshua Messiah here, that he's speaking about a comforter. What is his comforter? We know the comforter being spoken of here is the Holy Spirit. It's the Baruch Now, what do we learn here about the Holy Spirit? Number one, we see here that it's given to those who obey the commandments. That's what it says here. It's given to those who obey the commandments. Everybody thinks that they they have the Holy Spirit. I've gotten into a few uh, quandaries over the years. Never really. It's not my place to question if somebody has or has not the Holy Spirit, but I point this out. it, It upsets them. But it says here that we're to keep the commandments. There are many who claim today to have the Holy Spirit, and yet they deliberately disobey the commandments and even mock those who do. As we see here, to receive the one, it says that we must be doing the other. We also learn that the Holy Spirit indwells within us forever, it says. As we'll see later, through the Holy Spirit, it says that our bodies become the temple of Yahweh. Years ago, I would say, it represents the temple of Yahweh. Got away from that because I don't think it represents the temple of Yahweh. It is a temple of Yahweh. It is a temple of Yahweh. It's not something that it represents. It is a temple of Yahweh. I believe it's so important to understand a distinction historically. I did not make for many, many years. Goes on to say here that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. What does this mean? Teach us all things. Well, I think it means what it says it means. You know, sometimes we we try to make it mean something different but it, it says all things i believe that the holy spirit can teach us all things yahweh um, reveals his truth through his spirit when we were on national tv many years ago and i had a guy called me while i was working here full time several years ago and he was uh saying he saw the program and he thought he was the only person on earth who believed what he believed and he believed just like we did so, no one taught him these things. No one showed him these things. How is it possible that we and this man share basically the same belief system? Well, I believe that there's only one answer, and that is the Holy Spirit. I believe that as the Holy Spirit has revealed his or Yahweh's truth to us over the years. Obviously, he was working with this man as well. He was showing this person the same truths that we understand here through his Holy Spirit. So when it says that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things, it means that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. Then when we question and when we have doubts and when we don't understand, that we can go and pray that Yahweh would show us through his Spirit. Now, we also have to validate that through his word. I want to kind of say that because some people are very Spirit-led and doesn't matter what the word says. We can't get into that trap. We have to validate. But at the same time, Scripture says that this, the Holy Spirit, the comfortable, will teach us all things. And I've seen evidence of that again through this man who had no connection to anybody. And yet somehow he learned this. And he learned it, I believe again, understood it through the Ruach Kodesh. Now, as we see in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19... Through the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Ruach, we become Yahweh's temple. We are Yahweh's temple. It says what? Shall you not? Shall ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of Elohim, and you are not your own? Now listen to that. That's so important. By the way, you are not your own. So many people they don't understand that. Our lives don't belong to us. Our lives belong to Yahweh. Our lives belong to our Savior. We should be living our lives according to their will. So many people, though, they have this attitude that I'm going to live life as I will, that I'm nobody's servant or slave or whatever. And here we see that Scripture says that our bodies, our lives, who we are, don't belong to us. Belongs to Yahweh. We should live that way says, for you are bought with a price, therefore glorify Elohim in your body and in your spirit, which are Yahweh's. So important. Paul explains here that those who've been endowed and gifted with the Holy Spirit through baptism, that their bodies are the temple of Yahweh, because Yahweh's spirit indwells within them. They are the temple. They don't represent they are the temple of Yahweh. Think about that for just a moment. Think about the responsibility we have as believers when realizing that our bodies, which I would also include, minds and thoughts, are the temple of Yahweh. Consider that for just a moment. Consider the thought of what that means. Knowing that our bodies are the temple of Yahweh, we think that we would we would. Pause when finding ourselves deviating from his truth. It is an awesome responsibility to be counted as part of the temple of Yahweh. We must ensure that our lives and our actions are reflective of Yahweh's word, morally and in all other ways. Consider how Yahweh punished Nadab and Abihu, Two sons of Aaron, they offered strange fire before Yahweh in the tabernacle. And what happened? Well, Yahweh smote them with fire. He consumed them with fire because they offered a strange fire to him. Fire. What's the big deal? It's fire fire is fire. But Yahweh said, don't offer strange fire. Yahweh says, offer the fire. I want you to offer, not, not the strange fire. So think about if offering this strange fire, which I'm assuming was just fire from a different source, this strange fire caused Yahweh to consume these two men. What is Yahweh going to do with us when we do something far worse? We are the temple of Yahweh. And I don't know if we consider the gravity, the importance of what that means. We are the temple of Yahweh. As believers, it's crucial to realize the seriousness and and the importance and the gravity of our bodies, again, representing Yahweh's temple through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul in Romans 8, I want to close with this, eight, beginning in verse 9, talks more about the indwelling of the Spirit. So Paul, Romans 8, 9 through 14, says, but you are not... In the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of Elohim dwells in you now, if any man have not the spirit of Messiah. I believe that the spirit of the Messiah is the same as the spirit of Yahweh. Same thing, same spirit, same source. He is none of his. But if Messiah be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Yahshua from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Yahshua from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. We're not to live according to the flesh, the carnality of the flesh. He says we we are dead to the flesh, that we are indebted to the Spirit. It says, for we live after the flesh, you shall die. Let that sink in for just a moment, especially for some of these young people. If you live for the flesh, you will die. That's what scripture says. It's so important that we refrain from living after the flesh, that we live moral lives, that we live honest lives, that we live lives according to Yahweh's word, that we live lives that reflect The calling of our Savior, Yahshua the Messiah. So important. Now, where were we? Oh, I'll just start here. For if we live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify, mortify means to completely remove and, and deaden, mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of Elohim, they are the sons of Elohim. So Paul speaks here about how the Holy Spirit indwells within us. He explains the importance of the Spirit, the importance of following the Spirit, not following the flesh. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, he explains that we are part of Messiah. Because again, it says here that we have Messiah's Spirit, we have Yahweh's Spirit, same Spirit. Again, some people make a real big deal about this. Oh, there it is, evidence of Yahweh and Yahshua having separate spirits. No, one spirit, one ruach from Yahweh given to his son and given to us. Same spirit. But we have Yahshua within us. This is another reason why baptism into Yahshua's name is so important because we receive the Holy Spirit when? We receive the Holy Spirit at baptism and then with a laying on of hands, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's what we find This is why baptism and the laying on of hands are so important. He also explains here that his Messiah was risen from the dead through the Holy Spirit, that we too will rise from the dead through the Holy Spirit. Such an amazing promise. We also see in Romans 6, we read this in the Bible study this morning. By the way, love to have you for Bible study in the morning. 11.30 a.m., And for those local, that's central time. (laughs) Love to have you for Bible study, 1130. We were talking about Romans 6 today. And in Romans 6, it talks about baptism. And it says that at baptism that those immersed, that those who die in Messiah, not only will they die, but they will also share in the likeness of his resurrection. The reason why it's important to be here for the Bible study. You'll learn things like that. For those waiting to be immersed into Yahshua's name, I cannot impress upon you enough the importance of baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not to say to rush it. I know everybody's kind of in a different spot, and that's fine. But we certainly don't want to postpone it once we're ready for baptism. Paul closes here by saying, For as many are led by the Spirit of Elohim, they are what? says they are the sons of Elohim. Who desires to be a son of Elohim, a daughter of Elohim? Or at least I got one brave soul in the audience. (laughs) Somebody willing to raise their hand. Thank you, Eric. I know you desire that. If we're going to be found worthy as sons and daughters of Almighty Yahweh, we must be led by the Spirit. We must mortify our bodies. We must we must walk according to the Spirit. We must live a moral life. We must walk in Yahshua's examples. Live as he lived. Now, what does it mean for just a moment, led by the Spirit? or well, I believe that this means that we rely on Yahweh, that we rely on His Spirit. I believe it means that we have faith in the one we worship, that we have trust in Almighty Yahweh. I believe it means that we live a life of righteousness and morality and holiness, as Yahshua did. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. I can assure you that there is, a, that there is not a greater promise than being a son or daughter of Yahweh. We can look far and wide, we can live every day, and we can live a thousand years. And I can assure you, we will never find a greater promise than what we find here. The promise of eternal life in Yahweh's kingdom. There's nothing that compares, there's nothing. In some ways, I don't believe any, anyone can really fathom the greatness of, of his kingdom, how great it will, uh, will be. And I can promise you this, it will be beyond whatever concept you have today. If you think long and hard of what the kingdom will be like, I can assure you that it's going to surpass whatever you can envision within your mind now, whatever expectations it will surpass. So as believers, let us embrace this day, let us remember the meaning and the purpose of this day, to understand why this day is so important, to understand what occurred, to see and understand the value of Yahweh's law which was given on this day and also as we know the outpouring of Yahweh's rock, Kodesh of his Holy Spirit now, as it is our custom we um, like to close by imparting upon all those here and those listening the ironic Blessings, so if you would all stand and um, receive this very special blessing <inaudible> Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May Yahweh bless.